Some people claim superiority just by the reason of the family that they're born into. Uh, that has happened all throughout history, and it continues to happen to today. People think they're superior by means of their birth, you know, what they're born into. It could be uh, monarchy, could be royalty, although there's not much of that left around in modern days. But it also includes race uh, and socioeconomic status. Do you look like one of your parents? <laughs> That's a transition, uh, but uh, you'll see where I'm going. Uh, do you look like one or another, or do you look like a mix of them? Uh, do you have a certain trait that you have developed that is certainly from your parents that you've developed over your formative years? Uh, that is the old question of nature versus nurture. And whether it's your DNA that's determining who you are or your environment that you grew up in. Some people actually blame their parents for their problems. And to some extent, there's some reason to that, or part of it is true. And I say to some extent, I mean cautiously, that we've inherited things from our folks and we have, uh, have certain traits that we have developed because of the house we grew up in. But uh, if it's anything bad, which most of it is, <laughs> is uh, you can overcome anything with God. You, this was John's message to Israel, as we've seen, is that to repent and bear the fruit of it. And each of it, repent means to turn to God. And in anything, we can turn to God and find the power to overcome. Therefore, blaming others for what you do or who you are is a cop-out. And we're going to see that, actually, today. But one thing, we always talk about bad things you inherit. What about good things? What if you inherited something wonderful from a parent? Well, you actually have, if you're a born-again believer. God calls believers his sons and his daughters. And he demands, the Bible is clear on this, that he demands that we be like him because we are his children. And uh, we could never do that if God hadn't changed us. He literally changed us by the baptism of the Spirit. We're going to return to that topic uh, here coming, coming up again. Um, by the baptism of the Spirit, we've been changed. So your nature has been changed. And by the Holy Spirit within and God's Word, He teaches us. And so He nurtures us. And so for us, nature and nurture now are absolutely true. Both are in view and both come from God. And Jesus is going to make that point today. He's going to make that point to us. So John the Baptist is going to set us up for this a conversation that Jesus had with, uh, with a group of Jews in which they claimed that their family was what defined them, where they were born. And Jesus is going to have a problem with that, and he's going to teach them the reality. Uh, John sets us up with this by his own teaching. So let's see this. Let's start in Matthew chapter 3, 3, 7. Let's open up in prayer. Be thankful and grateful for God's word every day that we learn it and hear it. We're learning more about our Lord, and that is the most wonderful of things. So with uh, humility and reverence, being ready. To hear God's word, let's pray. 
Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace and mercy that brings us the truth. Thank you for the spirit within that makes it alive and that it is alive and powerful. Your word penetrates deep down between soul and spirit, between joints and marrow, and judges the intentions of our hearts. And so we can see what is what. We can see what is real and what you would have us do as as you are our creator and our father. And there is no one else who has authority over us but you and you alone. You have delegated authority to others, that's true, but ultimately all authority comes from you because you are our creator and our father. As your children, born again and saved, we are to have your traits. And you have made this possible as well. It's the most wonderful life to be able to have them. And uh, so, Father, we look to your word again, and we ask that you challenge us through the scripture. We ask in Christ's name, amen. So, none of us are born into this world with the ability to discern what is what. Uh, Just simply put, you know, what is is things about? What are things about? Uh, What is true? What is good? What is evil? What is right? What is wrong? Uh, None of us can discern it for ourselves. It has to be taught to us. If we're fortunate enough to have parents who have taught it to us, uh, but even still, no parents are perfect. But if you had good parents, you started off uh, in a good way, uh, and but still, that doesn't get you in the clear. Uh, What I mean by in the clear is that you are um, uh, the type of tree that God doesn't want to chop down. If we learn, use John's language. So what fruit you produce will determine who your father is or is evidence of. It doesn't, it's the other way around. So who your father is, is actually going to determine who you are, what you do, what your behavior is, what your conduct is. And so what fruit you produce in life determines who your father is. This is exactly the point that Jesus is going to make. So our origin is of extreme importance as long as we understand what origin is the right one or what's the important one. So in Matthew 3, 7, but when he's, uh, uh, John the Baptist here, of course, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, we looked at this yesterday, it's, are they coming to truly be baptized? It's, the language doesn't really bring that out, whether they are or not. They might be just coming to the baptism. Uh, like someone invites you to a baptism, right? You're not going there. You're not like, get that baby out of the way. I want to get dunked or sprinkled on, you know. It doesn't mean that you're going to get baptized. But regardless, um, what John says about them shows that even if they did come, to be baptized by John, their hearts are not right anyway. So he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And we saw that yesterday. This theme continues now because what John says next also continues with it, that the tree that bears fruit is the one that God is going to bless This image is used throughout the scripture. It's used New Testament, Old Testament, and it's used over and over. The uh, depiction of the tree that either bears fruit or the tree that is dried up and bearing nothing. It's in Matthew 21 where Christ, it's just as he's leaving Bethany and going into Jerusalem in his Passion Week, 
in that last week of his life, he sees a fig tree and he goes to get fruit from it. And he sees that there's no fruit on it and he curses the tree and it withers. And again, it's the same motif, it's the same theme that we see throughout uh, in many places in the scripture that God likens either the individual or the nation. It can be a nation as well, but individual or nation as trees and trees are to bear fruit. So he says, verse 8 again, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And so this next line in verse 9 is going to be our topic for today. What does it mean to say, well, you know, I'm born of Abraham and so I'm all set. This is really the idea that because of my birth, that I am uh, superior to others and also good with God. You know, that I'm, I'm all set because of who I've been born to. But then John gives him a warning. We're going to see this later on, too. There's so much here, and I don't want to... Well, God doesn't want me to skip over it. I thought I was going to go through this quick, but God always has his way. Uh, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. We'll see in the Old Testament that before the coming of the Messiah, judgment always had to come. Judgment must come before the Messiah comes. This is going to be true at the second coming. It's also true at the first So the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, the judgment at his first coming was not uh, the, uh, well, what it was is that the offer of the kingdom that he brought with them, when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he actually took it off the table from that generation. And he prophesied that that generation would be destroyed. And they were, meaning Jerusalem, but the destruction happened after his resurrection. Uh, At the second coming, the destruction is before him, but actually it comes after after he arrives, the second coming, he judges. And so the judgment and the coming of the Messiah are always and always have been uh, two, two things that have to happen simultaneously. And that's what John is saying in verse 10. Uh, before we get to that, we want to see here this phrase, we have Abraham for our father. The Greek actually puts the word father at the front of the sentence. And this is a neat thing that the Greek language can do because it's completely inflectional language, which means that the subject and the object or whatever, it's just say subject object, they have endings on the end of the ver- on the end of the word or the verb that show that it's the subject or the object. And so if you put the subject after the object, which in English makes a, a sentence that doesn't make any sense, but in Greek you can do that. And the reason you can do that is because uh, the word itself tells you I'm the subject. So you can put it at the end of the sentence if you want. In this case, they don't say we have Abraham. It says, Father, we have Abraham. That's actually how the sentence is put. Father is put first. We have Abraham. And what this can do for you in Greek is if you put whatever you put first kind of gives it a little bit of emphasis. And so they're emphasizing, and we'll see this in our main passage for today, another passage, that they're emphasizing the fact that we have a father, and he's Abraham. 
Now, Jesus is going to say, I have a father, and he is God. Now, they're going to say the same thing. But Jesus is going to say, well, if Abraham is your father, like you're saying he is, where are the traits of Abraham? Where's the nature, the nurture of Abraham? You're saying you're from Abraham, and yet you want to kill me. Is that what Abraham would do? Like, if you're, you should be like your father. And that's the point he's going to bring out. Now, people in our world, not just in Israel, but all throughout history, have claimed hereditary rights. I'm the son of the king. I'm the monarch. Now, in the founding of America, you know, who's the, who was the monarch in England that we had to deal with, which was George III. And George basically said, which in the Declaration of Independence refuted, uh, that just because you're born a king doesn't mean you can rule other men. Uh, I think it was Washington, it was Washington or Jefferson who said, men are not horses. No man is a horse that is designed to be ridden by another man. Like all of us have freedom. Right? It's a natural right. And that's what we built our independence on. But not, people have claimed hereditary title. People have claimed superior as a superior race, it's generally uh, a thing that you do when you want to uh, eradicate a competing race. So if you, like, it makes me think of the Serbs and the Croats in, uh, back over in Yugoslavia back in the day. I think that war was in the 90s. I think it was Clinton era when that war went on, and you know, they hated each other. Some were Muslim, some were, uh, one was Muslim, one was Christian, uh, and they, they tried to kill each other. Uh, this has happened all throughout history. The claimant that you're superior by birth. And so it's easy for fallen mankind to do this. In some cases, it's a justification for killing. In some cases, it's a justification for claiming power. It's like, I was born to power. And that's easy to do. Think, I don't have to work for it. I don't have to be virtuous. I don't have to... Uh, you know, <clears throat> to be a leader, a good leader, you have to sacrifice. It's a ton of work. It's a ton of sacrifice. You know, rather than do all that to be a good leader, why don't I just say, hey, I'm a leader because of where I was born. It's so much easier. In modern times, global, this globalized world has developed a global elite. You know, the monarchies of the past are gone, and that is absolutely, for the most part, true. But who's ruling the world now? I did a little reading on this. One, one writer uh, coined the phrase superclass, the global elite. And that was back in a book that he wrote in 2008. In 2008, he said in the research he did, there were about 6,000 people who had most of the money in the world and who were running the world. Now, it's a global world now. And you can be born into that. And the ones who rule are... You know, and but you can climb into that uh, that group. It's not easy, but once you're in, if you can get in, you're in, and then your your sibling, your uh, the children you have are in, and so on. And so it's a claim to what I should run the world because of the stuff I have. I have the money, I have the technology, I have uh, the financial. Uh, someone who uh, people who work in governments and so on. 
The point is that all throughout history, mankind has believed that entitlement by birth and by elites, and but it's not just the rich and the elite, it's also the poor as well who will claim superiority by who they're born, by what they're born. Like in our age, with all the um, the infighting about race, there are certain people now who are claiming superiority because of their race. God does not agree with this. I know we're not shocked to find that out, but it is not true. First, the unbeliever in Revelation 20.12 says, The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Right? This is the unbeliever at the great white throne judgment. They were judged according to the things that were written in the books. Notice, according to their deeds, not who they were born to, not how much money they had, not their position or what they invented or what they contributed, but their deeds. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, this is the judgment of the believer at the judgment seat of Christ. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds, whether good or bad. Notice the Greek word ergon. It's in both passages. So <clears throat> getting back to, again, this idea or this theme image in the scripture, which is fruit, the trees. God pictures each of us as a tree. Or, I'm not saying God pictures us as that, but the image is used in the scripture that the tree must bear fruit. The tree must bear something. It's going to be either good fruit or bad fruit. So the same thinking of hereditary prowess existed in the hearts of the Jews who believed that their genetic link to Abraham was the means of their deliverance. We're born of Abraham. Remember, Matthew, as he opens up his gospel, revealed his, a truth about the genealogy of Christ. Matthew had a very unique genealogy that he presented at the front of his gospel. Three sets of 14 generations uh, in which Matthew revealed... Uh, the royal house of David, and it was all full of sketchy characters as well as Gentiles. The Messiah was, however, born of a virgin, correct. And as such, he was not technically in the line of David through a physical father, but he was in the line of David through a virgin birth. And therefore, not having a human father, he was not tainted by the sin nature. And so what is God getting at here? Right in the genealogy we see it. But in our passage today we'll see the Lord make this very case to the Jews. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. That's it. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. It doesn't matter who you're born to. It doesn't matter how you were brought up. In certain environments you can be fostered to certain sins. I mean you can be... Uh, encouraged even in certain sins, but uh, you are a sinner whether you're in a good environment brought up or a bad one. Jesus has an extremely enlightening conversation with a group called the Jews in John 8. This, in two cases, they're called the Jews. I, I point that out because it's often you see in the Gospels that he's speaking to the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes. But here it's a blanket term, Jews. And they have believed, so it seems, there's some confusing language here in the passage. It's been argued and argued. But <clears throat> it, it seems that they believe something of what Jesus has said. But remember, Jesus holds a hard line. 
There, I mean, there's going to be many in Israel or were who agreed with some of what he said. But the fact that he said that he was the son of God, the fact that he said that he was the Messiah, when he goes to that hard line, no one comes to the Father but through me, they disagreed with that. So you can notice, which this is, which should be obvious to us, that there are people who you know, gave the Lord a hearing and believed some of what he said and then started to follow him. But as soon as he he got deeper into his message and held the line that he was who he was, that many left. We find this in uh, a great passage for this is in John chapter 6 where he starts teaching, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're all like, what in the world is he talking about? And they leave. Now, how much did they really, they believe some of what he said? Do they believe all? Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. And he takes a hard line on that, which, of course, he would. Everyone is born in sin. So entitled birth means nothing. The source of our entitled birth, whatever it's a elite class, a monarchy, a particular race, means nothing. It's a dream. It's a fairy tale. You're going to be judged one way or the other as a believer or an unbeliever. And so all are born slaves. All are born slaves. All right, let's look at it. Go to John 8.31. Jesus here, all the way to verse 59. And when I first looked over this passage for today, I'm like, well, you know, to to understand it, you've got to see the whole conversation. I think we do this too much, especially in Bible class where... You know, you want to kind of move along and stay on topic, and you do. But sometimes, if you just take a snippet of a conversation, you're not really understanding what the whole thing is about. You wouldn't want to go through a real important conversation by only hearing bits and pieces of it. You know, what what part of it uh, would you miss? John 8.31 So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, not, sorry, believed him. Now, you could say in him, but the preposition is not used. <clears throat> However, it, the him is dative. Uh, dative is, means it could be believed with him or in him. A dative can be interpreted to him. Uh, a dative is just an indirect object. Uh, so they had believed him. Now, that doesn't mean that they believed him to be Messiah, It doesn't mean that they believed in him. Now, there's certainly going to be, and in this context of this chapter, there are those who did believe in him. But there are also others that may have believed something of what he said because this group fights him. And there's a lot of argument over this verse 31, especially lordship salvation people who say, look, you can believe him and you don't have any fruit, so you're an unbeliever. But, you know, they're... Taking a theological line on something that's a converse or description of a conversation, um, just take the word for what it says. And we understand that there can be a group, even in modern times, that would believe something about Jesus, believe some of his good sayings. You know, I believe Jesus. I believe he's a good guy or he's a moral teacher or he's really awesome. 
Now, Muslims believe Jesus was a prophet. But do they believe in him as Messiah? And I'm not saying that there's different kinds of faith. I'm saying the object of your faith is Jesus Christ as Son of God who died for the sins of the world, who resurrected on the third day, who is the victor over all things. He is the Messiah King who sits at the right hand of God. I mean, that's the, that's the gospel that we believe. To believe he's a good guy, is not, that's a real huge distance from what I just said. So, he says to them, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, this is headed directly towards the tree that bears fruit. We'll see that. But he starts with this. If you continue in my word, the word continue is the Greek word meno, and it means to abide. It's a very common word in John's gospel. It's characteristic of John's gospel in all sorts of ways, that the word abides in you, that Jesus himself abides in you. And he said in, back in John 6, the one I just mentioned, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And the answer to the crowd was, what in the heck was that? And then he left. But he there is speaking of your identification with him, and not just the Lord's Supper, which the Lord's Supper is a celebration or a ceremony that represents this very truth. But remember, the Lord's Supper it represents a deep, deep spiritual truth. And that is his body was broken for us, and that his blood, which is the cup, is the new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of sins. You, uh, the one who eats his flesh and drinks his blood is entered into by faith those truths that you are now a member of the new covenant, that you are a recipient of the new covenant, and that you are saved eternally through the sacrifice of the Lord on the cross. And he says, that makes you abide in me. Here he says, the word abides in you. So he says, if you continue in my word, if you abide in my word, you are truly free. And what is the result of this? That the result is that you become a disciple of Christ. If you abide in the word. Now, you would only abide in the word, which means abide means to remain. So it's like here, right now we are abiding in the word. If we're concentrating, if we're paying attention, if we're... Uh, going through the word as we're studying it, uh, we are identifying ourselves with the word of God. And you're identifying yourself, therefore, with its inerrancy and its inspiration by God the Holy Spirit. You know that it is the only source of God's knowledge to you. The scripture is the only source of God's knowledge. And so as a result, you become a disciple. Now, a disciple is an attentive student of faith who follows Christ. Now, Christ says, pick up your cross, deny yourself daily, pick up your cross and follow me. And then you're my disciple. And that's when he said, then you will find life. And that's what a disciple is. You can't be a disciple without continuing in God's word. I think uh, in our day and age where you know, the megachurch has become very popular and a, um, a very cursory or superficial knowledge of the word of God has become enough that 
plenty of believers in our world are not real disciples of Christ because they don't abide in the Word of God. And uh, that's unfortunate. They should know. The pulpit should be teaching them this very truth. <clears throat> but the disciple is, getting back to our subject, is the one who bears fruit. In John 15:8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So a disciple is one who is a student, who is a student of the word, who believes that word and follows the Lord. And he will bear much fruit. And this is the tree. Now, <clears throat> we say, well, it's a vine, right? In John 15, it's a vine. It doesn't matter. Right? God doesn't care if you're... It's, he's not particular to whether, you know, some are oak trees and some are fig trees and some are vines and so on. It's just that it's an image for the fact that it's an agricultural image, like in the parable of the sower, that if we have a soul or heart that is good soil, then something's going to happen in our lives. And we don't even know what it is. I mean, what I love the fact that he just uses fruit, and that fruit is defined in big virtuous terms like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. And it, it's, it's not defined in the particular works that we're going to do. But yet we are going to do particular works, and those particular works are going to be fantastic in ways that we don't even know yet because we're, we're still growing. And that is our hope. So we're going to produce, notice, much fruit. Not just a little, but much. Now, Jesus elaborates further in this passage, pressing on two issues. Now, if you're going to produce fruit, you're going to love him and you're going to keep his commands. He says it again and again. You love me and keep my commandments. Now, it's clear in the Scripture that believers can be carnal or fleshly. What if you're a believer who's carnal or fleshly, not spiritual, and you're not bearing fruit? Well, you're cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, if that gets you a little tense, it should. Uh, but am I talking about, or is the Scripture, when it says this, talking about the fact that you're being tossed into the lake of fire and you're eternally damned because you didn't have enough works, of course not. The fire just continues the analogy here. It's not every time you see fire is not the lake of fire. The fire continues the analogy. When they cut down all the bad branches off a vine, and I assume they still do the same thing, they burn them. You're not just going to leave piles of branches on your field on your or in your vineyard. When you cut down bad trees, they burn them. They didn't have the the, the big uh, tree shredders. Is that what they're called? The thing where you, uh, yeah, tree shredder. Yeah, that wasn't invented yet. So they're burning them. So if you're a tree that's been cut down because you're not producing fruit, you're diseased or whatever the reason is, they burn them. Notice John 15:6, just two verses before to bear fruit and be my disciple. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burnt. <clears throat> this doesn't mean that these are angels casting believers who were just schmucks spiritually and they threw them into the lake of fire. It doesn't say that at all. It just continues the analogy. The analogy is, do you want to be a branch that is cut off because you're not producing anything? Right? They're pruned. 
<coughs> continuing on the believer side, because that's what we want to focus on for us. In Jeremiah 15, uh, sorry, Jeremiah 17, 5, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. Notice, whose heart turns away from the Lord, for he will be like a bush in the desert, bush in the desert, and will not see when prosperity comes. Right? Dried up. Dried up bush. Why? His heart turns away from the Lord. The line before it, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes the flesh his strength. See, that's a fruitless bush. And that, God is saying, is going to be cut down. It's an imagery for the fact that, you know, take it like James, James chapter 2. Faith without works is, it's like that. It's dead. You're still a believer. You're a child of God, but you got nothing. You're not living. And God has designed life to be lived. Then in verse 7, here, right? Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For it will be like a tree planted by the water and extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaves will be green. It will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Jeremiah 17. This is, we see this, notice uh, Psalm 1, 1 and 2. The one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his, uh, in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. <clears throat> and over and over again. There's lots of passages about trees being cut down, which are not Israel, but Gentile nations. We'll see those a little bit tomorrow. Assyria. Tree cut down. Babylon, tree cut down. Egypt, tree cut down. And then here comes John, and he says, if you don't repent to get ready for your Messiah, you're going to be a tree cut down. Now, what happened to Assyria? It's gone. What happened to Babylon? Long gone. Egypt? I mean, it's still there. You can go visit the pyramids. But the, you know, the pharaohs, the kingdom of Egypt, gone, long gone. And John says, if you don't accept your Messiah the way that you should, you need to, you're going to be gone. And that's exactly what happened. Now, what about us? Are we going to be gone? If you live to be 150 years old, and you're a cranky, old, miserable, carnal believer, did you really live? According to God, you didn't. You existed. You just existed in the world. And Jesus is going to make the point here in this discussion in John 8 that if you're of your father, you have to bear the fruit of your father. This becomes mighty encouraging to us because this conversation the Lord has with them, it really, really speaks to us as believers. Go back to John 8.31. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, Again, these could be Jews who believed some things that he said but didn't really accept him as who he was. If you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And Jesus is, we see in the very opening line of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, the word was God. 
And in verse, 15, verse 14, the Word became flesh. He is the Word. Jesus manifested the truth. And then now that we have Him as believers in the church, the whole, the whole thing, the whole Bible opens up to us. Now that we have Him and we have the New Testament to describe Him and the life and eternal life and so on, that now all this, which is the majority of the Bible, right? There's Malachi right there. It's just a few pages, but that's the difference, right? The Old Testament is twice the size, maybe three times the size, and all of this opens up to us. It's astonishing to me that there are denominations or groups of Christians out there who think the Old Testament is no longer for us. They don't even use it. But this, this wealth of truth because of Christ now becomes truly open. And so he is the truth. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now, notice their response. Verse 33. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? So their answer is here, just like John said. John said, Don't think you can say we're children of Abraham. The axe is at the root of the trees. <coughs> don't think you have to repent and bear the fruit of repentance. Don't think that because you're children of Abraham that you don't have to do that. that in other words, you don't have to produce fruit. They would say to Jesus, what are you talking about free? We're free. We're children of Abraham. We're free. We're not pagans. We have our one God. We have our Torah. We have our, you know, we're here. there's the temple, Jesus. You know, we're, we have... The religion, the religion. And so we are free. Jesus answered them. This is a conversation, this beautiful conversation that goes back and forth. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does remain forever. So here he's just using an analogy, which is a house slave. They all know this. We don't, really have, we don't have house slaves, not here anymore. I think some parts of the world it's still true, but by his authority, he says, truly, truly, everyone who commits a sin is a slave of sin. And a slave of sin, a slave is like a house slave. A house slave doesn't remain in the house. The son remains in the house. Okay. And then he says in verse 36, so if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. And so what he states here is that freedom can only come from heaven and Christ is the only one who has the authority to give it to you. You are, a, you are a slave. You cannot come into the house or remain in the house. And you will be like that forever unless I set you free. And why are you a slave? Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. You were born to it. Born slave. He continues, verse 37, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. So now he shifts a little bit to the, bring up the fact that if they are Abraham's descendants, they don't do the things that Abraham does. They're not like Abraham because he says, you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things that I have seen from my father. Therefore, you also do the things you heard from your father. Huh, your father. And notice, he doesn't say, 
In verse 44, he's going to come right out with it and say, your father is the devil. But here he's going to allow them, for a little while, he's going to allow them to make their own conclusions. Who is the father that he's speaking of? So they are Abraham's descendants, but they're sinners. The case in point to their sinfulness is they want to kill him. They want to kill their very own Messiah. So all who were born into this world are slaves to sin. So they're trees with bad fruit. And Jesus has made the point that your father is, is established by your traits. Who is your father? Now, we, for all believers, our father is God the father. That's true of all believers. It'll never be untrue, no matter how fleshly or carnal a believer may be. But it should never be true that we are ruled by fleshly characteristics. It should never be true that we are carnal by nature. It should not ever be true. And the Word of God makes this clear to us. If a believer isn't in the Word of God, then um, you know the Holy Spirit within them is going to convict them of this. That you are children of God. And if you're children, you are free. And if you're free, you should be uh, doing the fruit of what the father has or, or what the family member of the father should do. And so all of us are trees with bad fruit. We're born into this world like that. When we become born again and saved, then our father becomes the very father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hence, it makes absolute sense that we would be commanded to be like Jesus Christ because we're sons and daughters. So verse 39. So they come back now. After what Jesus has said here, you uh, first off, all who commit sin is a slave of sin. Secondly, a slave doesn't remain in the house. A son does. Thirdly, you can only be a son if I make you a son. I have to set you free. And then fourthly, if you were of Abraham, you should be doing the things of Abraham, not seeking to kill me. Notice their response. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Uh, they do not say anything about the sin issue that he brought up. They do not say anything about continuing in his word. All they see is that the issue with them is that they're from Abraham. That's all that they see. They think that's the only issue. You're talking about sin. You're talking about freedom. You're talking about slavery, whatever. We're, Jesus, don't you get it? We're children of Abraham. It's like anybody in our day and age saying, look, I'm born of such and such a family. Don't you know my name? And that's all that matters. Or I have such and such a money. Or I am of such and such a race. Or gender. Or whatever. Jesus said to them, end of verse 39, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. Whoa. Now he's getting closer. Now what deeds is he talking about? Well, he's actually talking about one deed. You want to kill me. He still doesn't name who the father is, but he's added another clue here. I think it's mar you know, this marvelous ability of the Lord under pressure to think so clearly that he can lead them along. And 
In fact, while he's being accused and ridiculed and mocked and pressured, he's able to continue to teach because he has such a cool head. You're doing the deeds of your father. Now think about what killing means. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You shouldn't murder. But to end a person's life just because you disagree with them. To end a person's life because you don't like what they look like. End a person's life because they're of a different race. End a person's life because of any reason that would be considered murder. It's not defending, right? You're in war defending your nation or you're defending your home or your family. This is, I'm going to kill you because of fill in the blank. It's something having to do with me. And to God, this is a most egregious evil. And who is the one to begin it all? We don't know when or how, but Jesus says it here that he was Satan, a murderer from the beginning. Who did he murder? God doesn't care to tell us, nor do we need to know. And in fact, does he, do you even have to murder someone to be a murderer in God's eyes if you think it, as Jesus said, you've done it? Have you thought of killing somebody? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think all of us probably at some point have. Um, as the scripture says, it makes you guilty. We're all guilty of many things. We're sinners. But here, the what they honestly seek to kill the Lord, and therefore they do not do the deeds of their father, of uh, Abraham. So he says to them, they said to him, now, now they come back. Now they're getting a little agitated. And they still haven't gotten it. He's leaving the door open for them to come to their own conclusions, but they haven't. We're not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. They've switched from Abraham to God. Now, they're not leaving Abraham behind, but they're saying, look, do you understand, Jesus, that as children of Abraham, we are the ones on the planet? We're not pagans. We're not polytheists. We're a monotheist who have our one God, And because of that, because we're members of the right religion, we're members of the right race, we're all set. What you're talking about, about sin and fruit and all of that, means nothing. What matters is where we're born or who we're born to. So we have one Father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and have come from God. But... I have not even come in my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. How amazing and wonderful and what a privilege it is to be able to hear God's word. He means here to hear it and understand it, obviously. They can hear it. They're hearing it. But as he accused them of, through Isaiah accused Israel of the same thing, that God actually told Isaiah to tell Israel that they had ears, but they do not hear, and eyes, but they do not see. And yet, if you're a born-again believer, you can hear God's Word. God's Word is your treasure, and you should see it as such. So he says, now he comes to it in verse 44, you are of the father, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Name it. What sin have I committed? 
If I speak truth, why don't you believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. So, born-again believers love the Father and the Son and do their will. Now, I know that not all born-again believers do this. I know that even those of us who really desire to do that don't do it all the time. But this was what our Lord says, and we must accept it. Trees that bear good fruit. That's what we are. If we're not, we're not living. And the fruit that we're talking about here, of course, is God's fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. Born-again believers love the Father, love the Son, and do their will. Why? Because God is your Father and you are his, His child, His Son. Therefore, you have the nature and the nurture of God himself. And so the tree that bears bad fruit is certainly cut down. And for the believer, that's he or she who does not live the Christian life. For the nation of Israel, that is going to be the end of their nation. For an unbeliever, it is deeds evaluated or judged at the judgment seat of Christ, and then they are separated from God forever. And so we must see then again that being born again, we are forgiven. This is uh, the things that come from the baptism of the Spirit. Actually, there's a few more we could throw in, but believers are forgiven. We are a new humanity. We are given new hearts, and we are dwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. Now, all of us are designed to bear fruit. Our natural birth, again, even for most of us, no, I don't. I've never heard an American claim. I guess I, I've never really known someone who's uber rich. I, I mean, I know that there are people who are born into families. Like I don't know. I, back in the day, you could be like a Rockefeller or something, and you know, people would be very impressed by the name that you carry. It's not a lot. Of, I haven't met anybody <laughs> of that particular persuasion. But you know, for all of us. Most of us, it could be good things or bad things, but the meaning that we that our name signifies. But to actually think that the race that we're born in or the family that we're born to has any bearing at all on the value of our life or on the judgment that we're going to face before God is absolutely ludicrous. <coughs> So Jesus retorts there, Abraham is our father, with do Abraham's deeds. They respond, God is our father. Jesus responds, if it were true, you'd love me. And you cannot hear my words because you're not of God. Rather, you are of your father, the devil. So to conclude the conversation now in verse 48. And the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan? That's that's a knock on him being from Galilee, by the way. The Samaritans are up north. And have a demon. <laughs> He's saying that. Talk about bad fruit. You're saying this to the face of the Son of God. That you're a Samaritan. That's a, a Samaritan is just a knockdown. It's like saying you are the scum of the earth. And you have a demon. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. 
but I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly. When he says this, it's a, it's a speaking of his authority to, to, to give commands or to say truths. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Please remember that when people are either ridiculing you or you feel the need to flex your uh, prowess in any realm. It's best to stay quiet and let the Father glorify you if he so chooses. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. If my father, It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I don't know him, I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. You have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. It's a clear depiction of his deity. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So notice again here, there's, Jesus concludes with, there's one who seeks and judges, and that is the Father. And the Father will judge the fruit that we have produced. Anyone who keeps my word will never see death. It's an amazing statement to make. Good fruit and bad fruit are life and death situations. Here, the context of his his, um, conversation from his point of view is that if you're going to say that someone's your father, you should bear the fruit of that. And so here he says, look, if you, um, anyone who keeps my word will never see death. Now, we who are born again and saved know that we have eternal life, but we also know that if we keep his word that we'll truly live. You'll be disciples of mine and you'll be free. And this here, again, is what he is getting at from the viewpoint of death. If we're slaves of anything, then it's depicted in the scripture as death. But here, if we are free, it is depicted by the scripture as life. And there's no gray area here. It's to be one or the other. There is one who seeks and judges, that is the Father, so before him I should be humble and honest before his word, and if I do so, I will live, and I'll bear much fruit, and therefore I'll be a tree that is blessed by the Father. Again, getting back to Psalm 1 and 2, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. How wonderful it is to yield such fruit. Christ said in John 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So God cuts down the trees that don't bear fruit. All of us have a lot of repenting to do. And what I mean by that is just in various areas in our soul where our attitudes are not in alignment with God's will or God's attitude that we have to change them. Now, God is going to reveal this along the way. There's going to be things you don't even know you have to change yet. You're going to find that out later. 
But when the time comes, we have to um, give over to God's will. Uh, So we're all born sinners. We're all born bad trees. When we're born again and saved, God makes us good. He changes our nature by the baptism of the Spirit. We have this wonderful hope in us that when will we change? If you abide in his word, you will. I mean, it's true that you will abide in his word, and over time the changes are going to be magnificent. Christ said, I came to give them life and give it abundantly, that they may have it abundantly. So God is going to make the changes, and therefore all of us should have a great hope to be truly joyful in the fact of the future. Now, along the way, as you're growing, and you know this, there are going to be times where it's going to seem like you're not growing. It's going to be times that seem like you're going backwards, even though you're still abiding in his word. There's going to be times where God is just seems like completely silent to you. There's going to be times where, uh, you know, it just feels like, well, God's going to bring trials. He's going to bring pressure. He's going to allow it to come upon you. You're going to be tested. And many of those times you're going to feel alone and that you have no help or hope. But these are times of trial and testing. They're times that are designed to turn you in some other area of your heart that you have yet to come to know that needs to be turned and to turn towards him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the truth that comes from your word. Thank you for your grace and mercy that bestows upon us all things that we need to grow in grace and knowledge. We're so grateful, Father, for your word, so grateful for the spirit within that makes it come alive, and that it judges the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. May we bear the fruit that you would will for us and see the reason why we must, so that we will be living in the characteristics and traits of you and your Son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.